My name is Jason Rosario, and I invite you to join me in open and vulnerable conversations about what's on the heart and minds of men. This is Hey Jason. Hey there, folks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Hey Jason, the podcast. So as many of you have come to expect on the show, we're usually diving into what men are really thinking, feeling, and experiencing as we navigate the new normal around masculinity. But what many of you don't know is how this work actually impacts corporate spaces, particularly through conversations around allyship, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Reggie Butler, He's not only a friend and a mentor, he is the CEO and founder of Performance Paradigm, a consulting firm whose mission it is to improve organizational culture and workforce engagement. Reggie has close to 30 years of experience as a motivational speaker and master facilitator, and is one of the foremost thought leaders in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. So check out our wide-ranging conversation on this episode of Hey Jason, the podcast. Reggie, thank you for being here. Thank you for being on this episode of Hey Jason. Um, I just want to sit down and have a conversation with you because I feel like it's, you know, we have so many points of cohesion with the work that you do, the work that I do. Uh, we just wrapped uh, day one of your training the trainer program here in, uh, in Tampa. And so I just want to talk a little bit about that, uh, but have a wide ranging, honest and vulnerable conversation if that's okay with you, uh, because I want to give people, uh, the, my audience, an opportunity to kind of not only hear about the work that you do, but more importantly, I want to give them a sense of your journey as to what got you to this work and what brought you here. So I want to get right into it. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, the work that you do, and uh, and then we'll get right into it. Okay. So the, the, my journey's been, um, it was a non-traditional journey. So I started off in education. I'm a classically trained pianist. I taught middle school, high school, um, I was a professor at Miami University, Oxford, Ohio, um, and I have been literally been in the education space all of my life. I've always been in front of people imparting messages in some way, shape, or form. And I had a, uh, I was a, a minister of music at my church, and one of my choir members just sort of looked at me one day and says, you know, but you're, you're a really powerful speaker. I did not receive that message that day because I was a school teacher. And I, what I knew for sure is that I needed three months off a year, June, July, and August. And I had no intention of going anyplace else other than staying in that particular path. And what I started to notice, though, is she was, she was pretty consistent in her effort to get me to see another lens, a version of myself that I couldn't see myself. And the reason I tell that story about my journey is I, I spend my entire life helping people see different versions of themselves and reframing their perspective on what the truth is. And so everything that I do through the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens or through the leadership development space or sheer coaching and helping people understand that you can have multiple versions of yourself in many seasons of your life. And I sometimes I just see people get stuck in one space and can't get out of it and they get into this vortex of regret 
Um, and I, I just chose a different path. I chose to, to honor what the gifts I have and to use it for good every chance that I get. So tell me about that moment uh, that you realized that your calling was in education in some way, um, because a lot of our listeners uh, are wrestling with that in their own lives and in their careers, wondering whether or not they should leave that job or pursue their passions. What was that moment for you? And if you can tell us that that story, yeah. take us back there. Yeah. So, um, so how really you want me to be? Be as real no, as you want no, to be. I mean, really real? Real, real. Real, real. real so real. I'm going to say that there's, there's, I know you, you have a wide variety of listeners, so I'm, I'm going to tell the truth about a couple of things. So one thing is you don't always have to know when that moment is. I'm going to give you a moment, but it may not have been the moment. And what I think sometimes people conflate is that until they have that moment, they can't move. And we are a species that's designed to evolve. And so if we're going to evolve, then the moment could be any given time, and I'm sure there are multiple moments that lead into a change in direction of your path. Um, my moments happen to come through when I transition from education and in, in the terms of teaching young adults into teaching older adults. And I say older in the context is that they are all young, but the reality is the maturity level in corporate America about how to treat people and to make a difference in an organization that's wrapped in its own cultural nuances that's sometimes pretty complex to navigate takes finesse. It takes someone who understands what the message is. And so when people find their moment or what they are perceiving their moment to be, I need them to do a couple of things. One is to coincide that moment with where I am right now, is this where I want to stay? I've, I've, I've had a couple of situations where people found what they thought was their moment, and it was a true moment for them at that time, but they wound up going down a path that was not designed for them. That moment was just that, a moment to make a shift into another direction, not to stay there. And I believe that wholeheartedly. So there are people who have come into my life that have helped me shape multiple moments in order to have this, this orchestrated design that I have. But what, you're, what you're alluding to that I want to kind of uh, bring out a little bit more is that you had a level of self-awareness to mm -hmm. understand and to realize that, hey, this is something that's happening, whether it's a, whether it's a moment or a series of moments mm -hmm. that led you to that point. You had a, a level of self-awareness, uh, which brings me to the work around diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, which to me uh, really is centered on self-awareness. Right. Uh, tell me about how you see that convergence. Yeah, there, there's a little bit. Not, I, you know, you, you think about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and sometimes people get really confused about business thing to do, right thing to do, why are we doing this, and all the questions around it. But if you take it through the lens of we are a population that is diverse by design because we're, we all have a set of similarities and differences, what I'm trying to get people to understand in the work that I do is that your authentic self you should never have to hide. And if you decide to code that authentic self, it is by choice. And we live in a world where people force us to make choices that are not healthy for us. So when I look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, I look at it through the lens of helping people find their voice, find their path that is true to them so they can sustain a quality of life that's very different than the one that seems to be institutionalized for some groups of people. Do you feel like people can actually be their authentic selves? When we hear that term a lot, show up your full self, show up your authentic self. Do you really feel like people can actually do that uh, in, in corporate settings? In corporate settings, yeah. uh, no. Hmm. So here's why, not? why I say that. Yeah. <laughs> here's why I say that. I, I, I've heard people say, and, and, and this is a, it's, it's, not a, it's not a Reggie philosophy, 
it is what I'm gonna call a data point in the, in the evolution of diversity work. So there used to be a time where when, when I first started doing diversity trainings, uh, and they literally that trainings, not experiences, people were trying to get you to acknowledge that there was a problem to solve. And in that evolution of diversity training, people weren't asking you to be your authentic self or bring yourself to work. They just wanted you to be acknowledged that there's a difference. You're black, you're white, you're Hispanic. And to acknowledge that and let that be okay. And then we saw the evolution of those types of trainings to get into the uniqueness of all the individuality that people had. And what started to not be talked about even in that is that no one was still bringing a version of themselves to work that they felt comfortable with. They were bringing coded versions of themselves that they felt would be accepted in a setting. And based on the ecosystem that you're in, those settings sometimes are unhealthy. And I tell people that all the time. If someone tells you bring your whole self to work, ask them like which version do you want and gain some clarity on what does that culture accept and once you gain clarity on that, people, people are really smart and self-aware enough to know if I need to change who I am and it, it is a risk to my health or my quality of life, I'm smart enough to know this isn't a place for me. And I offer that to all of your listeners. Like, be you when you want to be, but understand that being you may not work where you are and you need to be you somewhere else. I say that all the time. And I, what, what it does, and which I feel really strongly about, is I want people to give themselves permission to search for their authentic self. I, I've, I have a lot of uh, situations where people have not been able or allowed to find their authentic self because of environmental conditions. And when you get into all the systems and institutionalized things that happen in the world, sometimes people don't find their true selves or authentic selves so much later in life. And I'm, I am on a really, really tough mission to let people find it earlier, yeah. sooner. So I want to backtrack for a little bit because we, we often, those of us that are in the DEI space, often take for granted the fact that most people understand what we mean when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So can you spend some time defining what we mean by those terms? Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it in, in the simplest version. And so when you think about diversity, it's the similarities and the differences uh, that sort of make a person, and I'm going to say stand out and stand up. And I, I use that in the term of most people, when they hear the word diversity, they typically think of the difference. And I want to say diversity is about the similarities and the differences. When you get to this thing called um, equity, and I'm using it in the term of DEI, so equity, if it's the words in the middle, it's about fair and just systems and processes um, that bring equity into an organization or an ecosystem. And then inclusion is if diversity was similarities and differences, inclusion is the art and act of making a person have a sense of belonging. So taking those differences and similarities and putting them together in such a construct that there's a common objective or goal that we're all moving toward, not necessarily at the same pace, but moving toward something. And then there's this concept of cultural dexterity that we talk about. 
that's a that's more about business acumen. Uh, when in, at least in the context of, of the corporate world, you know your ability to have know how to pivot and the nuances between working in a global space or having people from different places on your team, you knowing and have enough self awareness and baseline competent knowledge about other cultural norms and traditions that you can actually shift toward what a person needs versus just viewing your lens through only, viewing your culture through only your lens, which I see a lot of people do. Sure. Um, but cultural dexterity is a learned uh, skill. Yeah. You, don't, you, you don't just naturally have it. Yeah, um, yeah. no, good, good point. Um, I wanna kind of maybe give folks context as to why we're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And most people know me and my work around masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they don't necessarily make the connection between the work I, I do around masculinity and diversity, equity, mm -hmm. and inclusion. And really for me, the way it actually comes to life is through allyship. Right? How do men, particularly in corporate spaces, use our voices and our platforms to advocate for underrepresented groups, for example? So women, people of color, LGBTQ folks. So that for me is the connectivity. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear from your perspective, how does this conversation around masculinity that, that seems to have become part of our daily lexicon shows up in your work? Yeah, it, show, it shows up usually. And if I take uh, the construct of a person's race, their identity, their culture, and their heritage, and I look at the identity portion of it, when you talk about masculinity and how a person identifies with their masculinity and or their gender, it shows up a lot in the work. And what, we, what I try to help people understand is that how I choose to identify is how I choose to identify. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't be made to defend that choice of how I identify. And sometimes when you do DEI work and you talk about men and masculinity in, this, in the context, people view it as it's either a good thing or a bad thing. And because there's a conversation out in the world right now, it's about white men and diversity. And it's like, are white men doing enough? And sometimes you have to look, is that really the question? Are white men doing enough? And I had somebody, um, I'll never forget it in the session, said white men, until they get involved in the conversation, nothing's really gonna happen. Because most of the things that have happened in the world the way we're shaped right now, where the dominant culture is mostly white men, once they're in the conversation and we create this allyship moment and there's a positive context, things happen, things change. And there was an unfortunate period um, in the history of diversity, equity, inclusion work where white men were excluded from the conversation. And the world is starting to realize now, it's time for white men to be a part of the conversation, not behind closed doors, but in open spaces, and that's what allyship looks like. Yeah, yeah, and, and allyship as it relates to black and Latinx men, mm -hmm. um, particularly for me, is what comes up often, right? Because mm -hmm. we talk about, uh, as you mentioned, white men uh, almost having a responsibility to lead some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we also can't separate that from privilege, right? This conversation around privilege. Um, and oftentimes I'm very vocal about saying, look, although I am a man and I am uh, a part of underrepresented groups, I still benefit from privilege. So where does privilege fall into this conversation? Privilege is a really sticky topic that has a it really has a bad connotation to it. And, I, and I, I try to, at least in the work that I do, in the spaces that I'm in, I try to get people to understand that privilege is a state of being, and it is not negative nor positive. Because it's a, it's a state of being. We all have privilege in some way, shape, or form. And some of those privileges are granted to us, some of those privileges we inherit, and some of those privileges we create. 
So every time, usually in diversity, equity, inclusion work, you say the word privilege, you automatically assign it as a negative construct and you assign it to white men. It's like, why? That is not what privilege is about. So if I take the privileges that are granted to me based on who I am and my lived experiences and I use them for good, privilege is a good thing. But no one recognizes that. They only recognize when privilege seems to be abused because you have something that I don't. It's like I lose something because I don't have the same privilege as you do. A positive reframing of that in a positive context would go a long way in this space. But we are in a very divisive society that leverages privileges and I'm just gonna say, helps curate a narrative that keeps privileges privilege in a negative connotation. What do you think are the biggest, you know, maybe two or three challenges that we are still facing um, in the DEI space, right? Um, you know, the, the, it's, this is not new. This conversation isn't new. It's just transformed. It's changed. It's pivoted. Um, but it seems like the results and kind of the outcomes are still the same. They're stagnant. So where do you think uh, are the bottlenecks? Uh, or the roadblocks, if you will, for us to make some significant change, progress. Yeah, this is, I mean, your podcast is too short for me to answer that question, but I'm going to, you know, part two. It's the important part. <laughs> so, but there are a couple of things that come to mind pretty quickly, and one of them is pace. So, the base, based on where you are in an organization, some people are trying to move faster than what is realistically possible in order to come up with a solution. People are moving really, really fast because the other side of not moving fast is this unintended impact of you're not doing enough. So you get people who are in the leadership space being pressured to move faster because they don't see any numbers changing or they don't see any representation changing. And those are all very myopic views of diversity. So what I, what I try to get people to do when you think about the challenge of what seems to be in the way is quit worrying about pace and worry about outcomes. We worry way too much about pace. I have organizations that are actually competing to outpace their competitors in the diversity space because like, we want our numbers to show up. I'm like, that is a pace thing you're doing. And you're not doing about the humanity of what diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about. So that's one thing, yeah. pace. The, I, I think the other thing is that people have become seduced by data. And I think it is, uh, I think it is highly inappropriate to let data be the only variable that you choose to say whether diversity, equity, and inclusion is successful or not. Data is, the, we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, we're talking about people. And I, yeah, and that is not something that a data point, if you move the data point, means a person will feel any different. It just means you move the data point. I had a, I was doing a session and someone said, um, you know, I want you all to feel like this is a place you can belong. I want everybody to feel included. And they asked the question, how many people in this room feel like they're included? And, uh, and the, the majority of the, hands went up in the room and so the the person said well what the people that did not raise their hand sort of looked at him and says why didn't you raise your hand and they said it's not I believe this is an inclusive place it's not inclusive for me so the perspective on sense of belonging and how you feel just because a group of people in a data point are filling out an engagement survey that says I feel like I belong here doesn't mean that everybody feels that way nor do they agree with even the definition what it means to feel included. So data, to me, is one of those things that I just, I see is not as helpful as it has been in the past. We're moving way toward a data rich, we're, we're mining data in a very different way to try to come up with a way to say, I'm doing better. Yeah. No, human yeah. insights are critical yeah. Yeah. In, in, in measuring progress. Uh, I want to end it off with a question that I ask all my guests, yes. and that is, what is your definition of a good man? 
a definition of a good man. Um, I'm going to say it's actually pretty easy for me because a good man is in relation to how a person perceives themselves and the impact they have on those around them. So if I feel good about me and I'm in service of the people around me, that's a good man. But I would like to challenge you on, on something because being a good man does not mean that you have solved anything. It just means you have a clear self-perception of what good means to you. Better question is, is the people that you're impacting think you're a good man? And what do you need to, to do to become a better man? Because I'm always about process improvement and moving forward. I can be a good man today and somebody need me to be a better man tomorrow. And if I don't know that, I won't meet the need. 100%. It's right. less about the, the destination of what that good man looks like mm -hmm. and more about the process and the iterative process of that. Um, Reggie, thank you for being on this episode of Hey Jason. Appreciate it. Um, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a part two to this. So All right. thank you again, brother. All right. Thanks for the time. Of it was course. An honor. Of course.